the underground bunker of the Civitas Studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's Civitalk with your hosts, Brooke Medina and Ray Nothstein. We're here to connect culture with civics, making it relevant to your daily life. And there we say, existence at a time where too many are triggered and offended. So, relax, but buckle up and let's wade into the deep end of what's really happening in your old North State. Welcome to another edition of Civitalk. Sitting in for Brooke today, our Director of Policy, Bob Lubke. Today, we're going to discuss the Christmas season, political realignment, the 2022 Senate race, which will be an open Senate seat here in North Carolina with the retirement of Richard Burr, COVID hypocrisy, school choice, and if we have time, we'll address voter ID, all those issues. Bob, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ray. How are you? I'm doing really well. I mean, uh, I'm not sure I'm loving this cold weather. I know it's not cold for you. And having lived in uh, Grand Rapids and other places up north, it's it's not really that cold. But, you know, I feel like I, I, I'm i just more used to warm weather in general. So in um, 50s is not cold and 40s are not cold. But, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm a baby now. <laughs> Everything's relative, isn't it? It really is. The first, uh, when I moved up to Grand Rapids and was working at the Acton Institute, the first winter there, and you probably had to do this at some point, yeah. but I had to scrape ice off the inside of my windshield. I had never done that before. Yeah, well, Michigan winters are, are, are different. You get a lot of the winter like Buffalo because you get lake effect, don't you? Right. So you get... Oh, you get, yeah. Grand, Grand yeah. Rapids would get... I didn't mind the snow. It was sometimes when you had the ice on the roads, which yeah. was scary. And you had a lot of drivers who had been driving in that snow for their whole life. Yeah. And I hadn't. So uh, it was new to me. I got my license in Mississippi, and I had lived in Kentucky, which had had some ice storms. And But, uh, yeah, I mean, you got people who were driving still above the speed limit in a snowstorm, and I was like, no, no way. M- Mississippi to Michigan – there ought to be some punishment leveled for that, you know. That's a that's well, yeah. a, that's a there's a lot of ground between those two states. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of culture shock. I mean, I got a lot of culture shock when I moved to Egypt and then to Mississippi. Uh, less so because I went to graduate school in Kentucky and then went back down to Mississippi and then up to Michigan. But yeah, those winters were rough, and the Midwestern culture. Uh, is different. It's definitely different than the Deep South. So it, it was definitely some culture shock. But the winners, I got. See, the thing is, my boss gave me really good advice. The problem was, I didn't follow it for the first five years. But he said, you got to find stuff to do that are outdoor activities in the winter. That's right. Live up here. That's and he right. was exactly right. Yeah. But I kind of just sulked and wrapped myself in blankets and watched movies in my <laughs> apartment for a while. And, that, and that's why you're in North Carolina now, isn't it? <laughs> right. That's so true. But then I started um I started uh, cross country skiing and really enjoyed that. A great yeah. cardio workout. Yeah. The problem is I started too late. Yeah. No, that's uh that's good advice because if you notice that everybody that's still living in those northern climbs they find something to do. Otherwise, it drives you batty. So. It does. It really does. So we're going to just discuss real briefly. We got Christmas approaching. We're in the month of December. What kind of things do you like or dislike about Christmas, Bob? Because I used to be a real Scrooge. Uh, I would hate. I was the kid who actually didn't make Christmas lists. I didn't like my parents buying stuff for me. And um, 
I wasn't always into the Christmas spirit sometimes when I was younger. Now I love Christmas a lot more, but what kind of things, is there anything that annoys you or that you particularly like about Christmas? Well, I, I love the family gatherings. As you get older and you, you know, you have your own kids and family getting together, I, I always enjoy that. And that's obviously one of the times during the year where people do it more than other times. So I really enjoy that. Uh, on the negative side, it it does tend. I mean, it's it's really easy to get exceptionally busy if you don't watch it. All the hubbub, you know, gift giving and uh, holiday parties and all that. If you don't, you know, take yourself off that that you know sometimes holiday treadmill, you know, you can get exhausted. By the time you get to the holiday, so I think you got to consciously watch or pace yourself because it can get exceptionally busy. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I don't like that, and I, I found myself being more knowledgeable about it. And the obvious commercialization bothers me, but uh, like it does everyone. But you know, just trying to step back and pace yourself and trying to enjoy the. Season and family, I think, is is are always the things that uh, I've enjoyed. Well, I guess that's never been a big issue for me because I've never had enough of friends to be exceptionally busy. But uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. There's certainly times where you do get you drawn in, maybe the holiday gatherings and parties or whatnot. That may not be as big a problem this year with some of the COVID restrictions. That's we'll see. True. Yeah, and I so, think I think people are probably on the opposite end of that and wish that they, they would have some sort of social gathering. There'll probably be a lot of that on zoom, but there's probably zoom fatigue too. So yeah, but on a normal basis, you know, on an everyday normal year basis, you know, I, I just kind of learned I got to pace myself because it can be, it can be very easy to get too busy during that time of year. Yeah, and I just uh, I do love the Christmas spirit. Uh, Christmas carols, I really love, and I think G.K. Chesterton, the great uh, writer, he's got a great quote about the theology of Christmas carols and how even when a lot of the theologians in church history sometimes failed, that the great theology just stayed alive uh, in the Christmas carols. And that the, you know, if you take a hymn like Charles Wesley's. Uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If you actually go through that hymn, I mean, they're so rich in theology because the church, a lot of people couldn't read. Uh, And so the church sometimes used hymns to teach people theology. You know, if they couldn't read their Bible, they would get this very rich theology through the hymns. And that's one thing I really like about Christmas carols. You know, I'd agree with contemplate them. You, you, you just, you actually get a, a strong introduction on Christian doctrine. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. I think too often we sing them because we enjoy them, but we don't think, you know, deeply about about the words. And there's a lot of there's a lot of deep theology in in a lot of Christmas carols. I'd agree with you on that. But I, I've often kind of wondered, you know, it, it you know as you you enter this time of year and you actually start or start re-singing a lot of these carols that you you've known for most of your lives. You know, I, I've always wondered when I was a kid, well, how come they're all from, you know, the 17, 1800s? I mean, has there been a good, popular 
well-known Christmas carol written in the last hundred years? I don't know, but I do not like the song. And I know some people like it, so I'm not dogging the people that do like it. But Mary, Did You Know, which is a song often sung. In, yeah. In, uh, is that regarded as a as a carol, though? I don't think so. I don't so. know. That's a good question. Maybe not. It may not be kind of in the carol status. Yeah. But you're right. The 18th and 17th century is, uh, is uh, you know, the primary, um, at least kind of in the Protestant tradition, to my knowledge, and it may be the same in the Catholic tradition, is the primary kind of gold standard for Christmas carols. Wesley wrote a ton of them, and uh, he primarily did it to teach people basic Christian doctrine. Some of the tunes are actually, I think a few of them are taken from popular bar music of the That's time in right. England. Yeah. And he, he would translate them uh, or he would, he would morph them into hymns. And they did that because they wanted the unchurched to know the melody so they could sing along. And, and so uh, Wesley was very popular and very talented and skilled at doing that. He was a very good writer in some ways, probably a better writer than his, his maybe more better known, brother John Wesley. But uh, yeah, it's always fascinating to me to kind of just look at the at the hymns and the carols and, and see what they actually teach. And On the Incarnation by Athanasius is another great book that has really made me more of a Christmas person because you get to dwell on all that rich theology. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't end on December 25th. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. The Advent season uh, goes up to Christmas, but you're right. The Christmas season goes beyond that. Let's let's transition to political realignment. I'm very interested in just kind of the post-election analysis. Um, you know, we've, we've seen this going on for a while, but the East Coast uh, and the urban areas, of course, are heavily Democratic. Um, but the income uh, levels, the, the rich continue to flock to the Democratic Party, especially the super rich in this country. And that used to be, at least traditionally, more known as a Republican strong subset in elections past. And, you know, Trump has accelerated. This has gone on before. I mean, you had this with Nixon and Reagan to some degree, especially under Reagan. But you have now the working class, middle class, uh, morphing more towards the Republican Party. Yeah, actually, I think the last two elections, we've seen those patterns kind of crystallize. And I, I think now... Um, they're going to become, you know, barring some massive reversal, they may become permanent, you know, but it's in, a, in many ways, it's, it's flipped traditional labels, you know, on their heads, you know, about how, you know, high income individuals, college educated, country club people, they've all traditionally been regarded as Republican, you know, and how, you know, the working class you know, the middle income and lower class people of all in the past generations have always traditionally gravitated towards the Democratic Party. But the last two elections, if you look through national data, you look through a lot of state data, that's that's really been flipped on its head. You know, and aside just from the curiosity of it, you know, there are a lot of long-term implications for that. I mean, I blogged a little bit earlier this week on some of that and just the implications like on policies, like, for example, on on student debt. Right. You know, and how, yeah, 
you know, in the past, you know, that issue's been kicked around for probably, you know, a good six, seven, eight years, but it's never gone anywhere in, in large part because, you know, when you get down into the weeds on a lot of these policies, you see if you really pull the trigger on student debt relief, that the majority of the benefits would go to high income individuals. Right. You know, and, you know, if you got, you know, Democrats, you know, mulling whether they're going to sign on to this, they'll say, well, that's not my constituency. Well, they say that in the past, but now that is their constituency. And, you know, they're looking at that entirely different now, you know, possibly as a, you know, payback, you know, for health, you know, just a recognition that they're representing people that are far different now than what, you know, their constituencies were 20 years ago. But it's got massive implications in a lot of different areas. Yeah, you're exactly right. Massive policy implications. And just like you mentioned, I mean, when you look at the student loan uh, crisis, whatever you want to call it, student loan issue, you could have wealth transfers from the lower to lower middle classes to higher income families because, you know, many of these kids going to college, they come from at least upper middle class uh, or middle class backgrounds. And they're the ones that are going to benefit the most from student loan transfers. And, and so you have kind of the working class subsidizing a lot of that. And so that's just one of those policy implications that you, that you brought up. And I, I just think it's just fascinating to me because this this realignment has been going on for a long time, but it has really, really accelerated under Trump. I mean, he, whether you want to call it Trump's populism, his America first policy, there are a lot of folks, uh, even if they voted for Joe Biden, maybe they just didn't like Trump personally, that I think are kind of leaving the Democratic Party, but yet the Democratic Party are gaining uh, among certain constituencies and certainly among the wealthy. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things shake out. And two, I mean, you said you had Trump made some inroads, of course, with Hispanic voters and, and black voters, especially in certain parts of the country, some because of issues and, and maybe school choice is one that played a role in that. But there are a lot of other issues uh, that especially related to the economy that I think you saw some of these minority groups who were hurt more by the shutdowns were much more open to Trump's uh, Trump's agenda or even Republican governor's agenda who were a little bit more skeptical about economic shutdowns because they were hardest hit by yeah. uh, these shutdowns. And you saw that in uh, Nevada, even though Trump didn't win, I think he closed that gap from the previous election because uh, that was a state that was heavily reliant on the gaming industry and that had been shut down for a time. So you saw him make up some ground in a state like that. Yeah. I have not seen... Um, numbers on uh, what Trump uh, pulled as far as, you know, ethnic breakdowns, as far as, you know, minorities or, you know, divided up by, you know, like even religious groups, you know, evangelicals, Catholics, you know, non-religious. Have you seen any of those yet? I've I've seen exit polling. So the exit polling showed improvements with Hispanic voters and black voters, not in every state. But in certain states, uh, of course, Trump, I think, did really well with Hispanic voters in Texas. 
he lost some of these like uh, wh- white voters who were kind of in the sub- suburban areas, especially white women, um, but he uh, white men too. But he he picked up uh, heavily. You know, he, he improved his numbers with Hispanic voters, Florida too, and those states tend to the Hispanic voters there tend to be more conservative than say California. Yeah. So he did yeah. he did pick up uh, in those areas, and that allowed him to win those states fairly easily because of that. I think there was a border town. Uh, a border county in Texas that was like 92% Hispanic or something. I don't remember the name of the county, but it was along the border there. And he had massive improvement there than he had uh, from night from 2016. That's, that's amazing. But I mean, those stories get buried. <laughs> they get buried. Yeah. It just will be, it's gonna be fascinating to watch and it'll be to me um, to kind of close this out. And we'll talk about the 22, uh, 2022 Senate race. But to close this out, it'll be fascinating to see where the Republican Party goes. Because Trump could Trump could run again. And I, I predicted to a friend that he may actually use the inauguration date if he's all in. And I'm not sure that he is. But if he's all in for running again, he may announce on inauguration day. Whether that means he attends inauguration day, I don't know. That, I would that, would, be, that would be very Trumpian, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, nothing would really surprise you with him. And I could see him doing that. And I think he would be a proverbial front runner. I mean, I don't see anybody coming along that yeah. would steal the nomination from him. Now, he, that doesn't mean he would win. That, a lot of that will have to do with how well Biden-Harris ticket performs as president, you know, as you want to, or Harris-Biden, as some people call it. However they do in the presidency and, and you know, the state of the economy and how things look on that front, but I could see him easily coasting to a renomination and I could see him running a very competitive campaign. I think he will get his paybacks one way or the other with this. uh, Yeah, I I think, um, I think you're entirely right. And I think that's the big question looming over not only the Republican party, but the whole 2024 election and people are prognosticating all over the place, but I equate this, you know, to, you know, athletically, you know, the the guys just got out of a boxing match, you know, and you're in the locker room now and you want to ask the guy, what do you want to fight again? You know, you got to have a cooling off period. You know, you have to, the guy, you know, you don't ask a guy right away, you know, when in the midst of some contest, you know, whether he's going to fight again, because, He's got no, he doesn't have the benefit of perspective and kind of stepping back and looking at, um, you know, what things look like and kind of thinking clearly. And I think, you know, I, I would, I don't take anything he says seriously right now. I know he's been teasing, you know, the electorate, but saying he's, you know, he may run in 2024. But I think he needs a time away to, kind of assess where things are at before, you know, he'd seriously address this, but it's a huge question. And I, and I really think the fact that he did much better than all the political establishment expected, you know, really uh, reasserted, you know, his, his influence and, you know, uh, power over, you know, the Republican brand and how it's, it's really his right now. It's his to lose too. 
you know, and, and he may do that, but he's uh he's the nine hundred pound gorilla in the room right now. No, I think that's right. He'll whether he runs again or not, he will be an important kingmaker. And I think whoever let's say he doesn't run and whoever vies for the nomination in 2024, they're going to have to probably have his support. And that probably includes a lot of governors and Senate candidates out there. They're going to need the support of Trump if, if they're going to be successful and, and bring together a broad coalition that it takes to win. So it'll be, what about here in North Carolina, Bob, we got a 2022 open Senate seat because Richard Burr is retiring and we've got Mark Walker, Congressman Mark Walker, who has, has thrown his name in the hat, has thrown his hat in the ring to run for that, open seat. He obviously will be a strong candidate. Uh, but you also have a a wild card in Laura Trump saying that she is considering it. And of course, we can get into Pat McCrory, who could, could potentially be a candidate. His name is thrown out there. He decided not to run for governor again, but uh, he could be a Senate candidate. So what do you think about this race at all? I mean, this this is the race that we'll be looking to before the the 2024 election. And it may, you know, provide some tea leaves for what could happen in North Carolina. That's right. Uh, I, I'd probably guarantee you there there may not be two hundred and eighty million dollars spent on it. Uh, <laughs> maybe there will be, but I, I mean that's as much as was spent on Tillis v. Cunningham. Yeah, but uh, the uh, you know that's going to be exciting. It'll be interesting because um, there's a lot of. I mean, there's a lot of space between those candidates there as far as philosophically, you know, and, and even if uh, former Governor McCrory jumps in and if Laura Trump indeed does decide to run, that would be a very interesting race uh, simply because of, you know, all three of them, you know, I, I mean, Walker probably has the least public profile, but he does have a public profile in the other two, obviously, former governor and Laura Trump, who's fairly well known in North Carolina. So uh, that would be interesting politically. Also, you know, based on where the numbers are at, um, you know, and, and the results of the Georgia race, I'm sure is going to uh, tilt some additional importance on that. But as far as the actual numbers in 2022, if I recollect correctly, I think the Democrats had more seats up than Republicans. You know, did you re- remember that, Ray? Or, or? Yeah, I don't remember the exact number, but Republicans do have to defend more seats in 2022. Okay, um, I do know that. So that will be uh, obviously a contentious election, and uh, it, it'll be interesting without Trump on the ballot. That could, you know, the, the proverbial kind of cliche was that Republicans didn't do well if turnout was really high, but we saw in this election, especially in North Carolina, Republicans did really well with very high turnout. That's right. So, yeah. Uh, you know, that cliche kind of uh, took a big dent. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if, uh, I mean, it, depending upon, you know, Trump's decision and whether he's going to spend, you know, the next year or two rallying the troops. Uh, I don't know, you know, how, I mean, Walker and Trump, you know, would would be more obviously in into that legacy than McCrory would, you know. But you know, how would that pan out as far as you know vote totals and so forth? It'll be right. interesting. And we, 
We don't know. We don't know Laura's, uh, Trump's positions on a lot of issues. I mean, she was obviously a defender of her father-in-law. Yeah. Uh, but she, you know, she's not bombastic. She's not somebody who, uh, you know, is like the mold of Donald Trump Jr., her brother-in-law. She's yeah. married to Eric Trump. They're a little bit more low-key. And uh, But she is well-known across the state. She's campaigned heavily across North Carolina for Donald Trump. So she's well known, obviously, but we don't know her position. You know, we don't yeah, know. But the, the, the assumption is that, you know, she'd line up by and large you know, with most of his positions if she was. I think so. I think that's I think that's yeah. accurate. And she would run as an outsider and, and potentially like Mark Robinson was successful as an outsider. She would have a, a very viable and strong campaign, I think, if she decided to run. I mean, we don't we don't see her as the candidate on the trail, so it's hard to say exactly, but she would certainly, you know, voters, I think, look for outsiders sometimes, and, and sometimes they're sick of the establishment. So that w- might play to her advantage. And But Mark Walker would be a strong candidate too. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Uh, I'm really fascinated by that race and, and who gets the nod from the Republican perspective. And of course, you'll have, you might have some new names and some old names on the Democratic side, because both, both uh, just like the Tillis a Cunningham campaign, it'll be very competitive. And, uh, you know, I think both sides will go into that thinking they can win. Yeah. And that'll be six years after, you know, Governor McCrory left office, which that can be almost a, you know, a political lifetime for some people. You know, right. he may have to still refresh people, you know, who he is and what he did, et cetera. So well, that'll be interesting. It'll be exactly. Ex- be very interesting. Now let's just just take a brief moment. Um, you know, we've got these governors and mayors uh, expanding the restrictions again in certain states. Uh, a little less so in North Carolina, but there's been some mass mandates uh, that have been tweaked here in North Carolina and some other rules with uh, inside uh, dwelling uh, spaces that have been added to Cooper's latest executive order. But um, we've got some COVID hypocrisy from some of these lawmakers, and of course. Uh, limousine liberals is sometimes a, a term that is used with with uh, people that think they're maybe above some of their own policies or insulated from their policies. You had the Denver mayor who told people to stay home for Thanksgiving and then immediately got on a flight to Mississippi. And then you've had the uh, mayor of Austin. Uh, he left uh, the country while he told his uh, people in Austin to stay home for Thanksgiving. He left the country, went to Mexico. You've had other examples, of course, Pelosi and Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago, who got their hair done when they were telling other businesses to close and, and stay shuttered down. Uh, the governor of Pennsylvania crossed state lines into Maryland because he shut down the restaurants to go eat there. And of course, the Louisiana governor um, was caught at a country club, not masked and socializing while he was telling people to behave a certain way. Do you think this uh, this hypocrisy, and, and it's, it's been on the right before in the past too, I'm not just picking on Democrats, but do you think this hypocrisy does it does it decay the sort of alarming nature they kind of want to present with COVID? It almost seems like they don't necessarily believe some of the rules that they're mandating down. Yeah, it, it undermines their own credibility, you know, at a minimum. Um, you know, and, and I, I I think you know it's it's hard not to notice that. I mean, there are some of the instances that. You mentioned predated the election, but a lot of them were after the election. Or, you know, I, I, I think people 
you know, get tone deaf and they think, you know, it's it's political arrogance where they think, well, uh, they're not going to remember this in two years, you know, and it, it it's it's the worst kind of arrogance, you know, you know, do what I say, not what I do, you know, and I really feel like based on the fact that, you know, people have been, you know, under this COVID cloud for, you know, almost nine months now, that if you're going to get a, a steady driven drab of this hypocrisy from politicians at a lot of different levels, it, there will be, you know, blowback on this, you know, electorally. And I also think you can only push people around and try to make a case for this for so long, you know, where, you know, even early on, you know, I, I think you must remember, Ray, when this was earlier in spring, when uh, the governor was coming with, I mean, it wasn't an example of hypocrisy, but it was, it was indicative that, you know, not everybody was on board on the legitimacy of these lockdowns where you had local sheriffs say, you know, I'm not necessarily going to arrest somebody, you know, you know, if they're working to support their family and they're violating, you know, the governor's uh, shutdown order, you know, and I remember that not only because there were a number of sheriffs that came out and said this, you know, not only one, but there were like three or four that came out and it, you know, you can get, you can pretty much have your career ended, you know, if you say that publicly, but they stood up and it was indicative of, you know, there's, there's still a lot of real public doubt about how we're handling this. Obviously, you know, there, there's a pandemic you have to deal with, you know, and I think the people don't doubt that. I think where the question has always been is, you know, are we responding to it, you know, correctly with the right level of, you know, uh, public, you know, the need to change public behavior, you know, the right amount of public safety measures, things like that, medically, et cetera. I mean, obviously, we haven't done this before, so... It's a, it's a new area, et cetera. But I, politicians have just displayed, you know, as the, you know, you, you just noted a tone deafness, I think, to the weariness of the public on this. And, you know, when they uh, get involved, you know, in instances like this and they they kind of, I mean, show that they don't really by themselves what they're selling it's it's going to have massive repercussions i think i think if any one of those um, individuals that you mentioned if they were up for re-election in two three weeks after you know getting caught in something like that i think they'd have real problems getting elected because i think people are wary of it i mean get if you, i think the poster child for this is Gavin Newsom, California. Right. 
and his his poll numbers have plummeted, you know, and it's mostly been a result of how he's handled COVID and his hypocrisy over all of it, which is, hey, I can point out all the stuff that I want the public to do, but I don't do it myself. Right. And so, I think I, I was just going to say, you know, the media obviously is no secret. They cheerlead for the Democrats. This is kind of the first election where the cheerleading was just so blatant. Uh, and a lot of that has just to do with, you know, their hatred for Donald Trump and whatnot. But they don't like the hypocrisy either. So they're starting to cover these stories aggressively when these because, you know, people like a people like a good hypocrisy story. And so if you got lawmakers who are acting hypocritical on these issues, they're going to pounce on it. And, yeah. you know, and, rightfully and I, so. think, I think they're misreading it because they don't realize themselves. They're not living the weariness that the public is. Right. You no, know, they're not, you know, they're not a family that have, that has had, you know, two, three kids at home, you know, juggling virtual learning, juggling jobs and all that. They've been inoculated from all that. So they don't, they're not living it like other people are. And I think I under, I think they underestimate the weariness that the public has over it. Yeah, it really kind of ticks me off. You know, I, I was somebody who is willing to play, um, you know, play by the rules, uh, when some of these mandates came down, but when you see the hypocrisy, it just kind of galls at you. And the thing that really bothers me, because I, I blogged a little bit on this, was even the you know the hypocrisy is one thing, but then you've got the voters out there, and, and there's a certain strand of them that want to give these folks more power. They they, they almost applaud yeah. uh, more aggressive lockdowns, and I get doing that from a perspective of say you know, I'm fearful of this virus or I get them looking at it and say, we need to have a very um, uh, conscious public safety plan in place. But then to kind of, you know, look at these politicians as people who know what they're talking about all the time, because they're not, they're not epidemiologists. I think there's a lot, there's a big aspect of them just trying to act like they're doing something. And, you know, people, Bob, a lot of people pounced and Club Mark Meadows when he came out and said, basically, the politicians and the government really can't control this virus. They really jumped on him when he said that. But I think there's a lot of truth to what he was saying. I mean, it's really incumbent on all of us to do our part and to, you know, wash hands and and take some of those CDC recommendations very seriously. But at the same time, if you have an element who are just putting down these decrees and not following it, you're right. There's going to be blowback. And I think kind of the the big issue is it bothers me when I see people uh, kind of cheerlead for some of these politicians, because really, in the end, some of them don't know what they're doing. Some of them don't know what they're talking about. They just want to act busy and act like they're they got this virus under control when we see they don't. I mean, they they really don't. And a lot of these lockdowns haven't worked. Uh, The cases in, in, in many states where they haven't been as aggressive are the same or maybe even a little bit better than states that have been more aggressive. And so I think Mark Meadows had a very important point. And his point was, I think, even though he didn't say it this way, but Dan Forrest kind of did during that debate, was that you can't really treat people like children. Yeah. And there's an aspect where people just have to take personal responsibility for themselves and, and not necessarily look to government to solve all of this. And certainly Trump did some good things by trying to do the warp speed with the vaccine, which we all applaud and, and should applaud. But, um, you know, there's, there's an element where the central planning just comes into place and government's just not going to solve things. 
by yeah. the throwing more mandates down. And, and people didn't want to hear that when Meadows, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people didn't want to hear that when Meadows said it. But there was a ring of truth to that. Yeah, I think I, I remember exactly when I heard that and how he got pilloried, you know, for several days for saying that. And I, I, my jaw just dropped to the floor because it's true. But it also is indicative of just the gulf between, you know, how how the two parties have addressed COVID. You know, and I, I guess obviously my expectation now is that, you know, uh, if Biden indeed, indeed assumes the presidency, I mean, everything he said up to this point is, you know, he's going to, you know, pull together all the experts and they're going to control COVID. I mean, he has basically said that, you know, he's he's also at, at times has hinted for that he might have a second lockdown, et cetera. But, you know, coming out of the progressive wing, you know, out of the Democratic Party, uh, I would expect that he fully believes all they have to do is marshal the resources and the expertise in the room, and we will be able to solve that. I fully agreed with Meadows, you know, that you can't do it, and that we should be able to do, you know, as Dan Forrest had, had often alluded to, be able to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time, i.e., you know, work, you know, tend to our basic lives, but still at the same time, be able to be careful, you know, and take whatever precautions we need to take, you know, to live, you know, safely in a country that's been riddled by a pandemic. Absolutely. Now let's um, kind of finish on just two last topics. Why don't you give us a quick update on the climate and culture of school choice in North Carolina this post-election, because we have obviously a new um, superintendent of public instruction, Catherine Chewett, who's uh, open to school choice. And you didn't have anything change dramatically. You had Republicans who picked up some seats in the House, lost one in the Senate, but still have the majority. And you have the, the same governor and Governor Cooper in control. So kind of on the face, a lot of things aren't going to change when it comes to school choice. But I think obviously with the pandemic, uh, COVID has created a a greater need for school choice just from a practical level. But the political level, it, it's I think it's increased. I mean, here in North Carolina, people just want more options. Yeah. So are we going to see anything new on that front or maybe even some aggressive pushes by the legislature? Yeah, I, I think COVID has really helped underscore um, how choice can really help meet the needs that are so acute at this time. Uh, so that's been, you know, that's been great for school choice because, you know, we've just seen, you know, with with COVID, you know, with changing populations, it's just been hard for the public schools to, you know, meet all those needs. And parents want educational options. We've known that. I think COVID has just underscored that and actually cemented that preference in people across the political spectrum. So we are optimistic. Um, I think COVID has has really boosted our chance for uh, expanding choice. Um, as you remember, in the last uh, COVID bill that we had, there were two provisions that actually expanded school choice. We expanded the eligibility for 
the Opportunity Scholarship Program and for the ESA program. We uh, actually added uh, $6 million to basically take care of the backlog and the applicants there. So those both those programs are popular, and I would expect um, that they will continue to grow. What we'd like to do, you know, in the coming legislative session is continue to build on that, tweak some of the the provisions, like, for example, in the Opportunity Scholarship Program, the voucher is recipients can earn up to about can can receive up to about forty two hundred dollars, you know, at at most uh, if they if they are eligible for the maximum amount, and that's been the case since two thousand thirteen. We'd like to change that and and actually try to tie it to a percentage of uh, per pupil expenditures simply because um, it's been harder and harder for recipients to actually, you know, cobble together enough money to pay tuition. I mean, it, I'm not saying it helps. It helps a lot. But as with everything, costs go up. So we're trying to update some of that. Also, with regards to charter schools, we're trying to correct uh, a couple provisions that have been uh, we've tried to uh, change in the last couple of years, which was basically secure equal funding for charter schools, even though um, legally uh, charters are supposed to receive the same per pupil expenditures that uh, uh, pu traditional public schools receive. That doesn't always happen. And we've got a number of provisions that uh, would help to ensure that that occurs, you know, going forth. So we're optimistic about both of those. So, yeah, I think I, th I look forward to it. I think uh, more and more legislators on both sides of the aisle are coming to see how choice can really help parents, you know, in the desire to secure the best educational opportunity for their children. You know, yeah, and, absolutely. And that's, absolutely right. I think I, I remain optimistic. And, and you know, I, I'm always encouraged by our poll numbers. I mean, we've uh, we've won the argument with the public. Now it's just. It's just turning that public sentiment into policy. No doubt. Uh, I think we'll, we'll, you know, obviously the pandemic is changing education, higher education as well. And it'll just be interesting to see how some of this stuff shakes out. And I think it will be very positive for school choice, like you said, just because the poll numbers have consist consistently polled so well across the state. And I'm, I'm excited for there to be more options just just from a practical standpoint to allow parents to to be empowered to allow parents to provide uh, help provide the best education for their kids it just makes sense and especially this pandemic has really exposed that we had a three judge panel uh the fourth uh district uh, fourth federal district uh upheld the voter ID in North Carolina we're not going to talk too much about this but We'll close out just on voter ID, which is part of our state constitution now. Andy has written about this on our blog. So if you want to check out the latest, he he predicts that because of this lawsuit still pending at the state level and different areas that this won't shake out fully until 2023. But this is a piece of good news. And I think with some of the election fraud going on, you know, what other depth it is or what you believe about uh, potential election fraud or not, that I just think the voter ID argument, the hyperbolic response to it is not going to be as effective because people realize 
They're going to want safe elections after this election. They're going to want secure elections. They're going to want that their vote to, to feel like it was valid and that there's a system in place to protect that. And so I think voter ID is just, it's, it's always been for a long time, this common sense issue that most states have, but it's good to see the courts, which have, uh, you know, really abused and, and kicked North Carolina around to some degree for a while to affirm the voter ID here. And it may be a few years before this shakes out, but we're off to a good start to basically just affirming what uh, voters have passed in the legislature through their legislators and through themselves uh, by adding that to their state constitution. Yeah, I think it was a rebuke, you know, to all these far left groups that, you know, have been hell bent on doing everything they can to, you know, to distort, you know, the amendment that the legislature put up before the people, you know, in 2016, that was, I think approved by, was it about 60% of the population? Uh, yeah, I was like 58%, 57, 58. Yeah. And, and so um, it was, I think we shouldn't forget that the decision was uh, unanimous. Uh, two Republicans, one Democrat. Uh, and, you know, it, you know, it was a rebuke of what happened two years ago. I, I look at it, I mean, it's somewhat, you know, th- what, th- three weeks to a month after the election, it's kind of a pyrrhic victory. But, you know, it, this is going to be a long slog. Uh, there are other fronts, you know, that the left's still trying to attack voter ID on. But I think with this victory now, I mean, there should be, and Andy would know better on this, but I, I think the, you know, we're kind of, uh, knocking down the major obstacles just to make sure that this constitutional amendment gets, you know, enshrined and and we we do we are able at least to, you know, put in law what the the voters have already approved or the residents of of North Carolina have already approved, and you know just make sure that our elections are secure. So. Yeah, I think that's a big issue. People want secure elections. And I think just the the hyperbolic nature of this argument is going to recede uh, with all the other things going on, um, whether it be related to COVID, but also just the secure elections, the, the constant whining from so yeah. many on the left on this issue is just, it's not going to resonate. I don't think it ever really truly resonated, but I think it's going to resonate even less. And so, Yeah, and I, I think it's driven by a shrill segment the population. And I, I think we talked about this before, but it's worth pointing out that if you actually drill down into a lot of the polling on this, that African-Americans and other minority groups oftentimes have higher percentages of support for voter ID, you know, than, than, than white Americans do. So, yeah. and that's a fact that gets lost oftentimes. And if that was the case, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, you know, that history didn't exist, but I'm saying this is not, you know, that 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 um, you know the amendment that was passed, you know, was duly approved, and then most and all the claims that the left say, you know, are behind this are it's just garbage. So, yeah, I completely agree. And the court, oh. the court basically said the same. Yeah. Uh, that's Bob Lupke. I hope everyone out there has a wonderful Christmas. Uh, enjoy your holiday season. Enjoy being with family uh, to whatever extent you can be. We really appreciate you listening today. And uh, just uh, 
Hope everybody feels blessed uh, during this time, this season. Uh, even though there's a lot of trials going on there, there's a lot of blessings and things to be thankful for. So we appreciate you and we'll be back soon. Merry Christmas, Ray. Merry to Christmas. everyone else. <laughs>